the biggest takeaway of designing for your kids is to plan for change. And the second biggest takeaway is that to whatever extent you can, give your kids some agency over the process. Hey there, welcome back to Mid-Mod Remodel. This is the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid-century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid-century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 4. Last week, I spoke directly to parents with kids at home right now. I wanted to offer practical advice about how design thinking could improve your day-to-day experience as a parent and provide some experiential learning for your little ones. Today, I'm going to do part two of the design for and with kids content. I'll still be talking about how you can get your children engaged with your home plans and why it's so important for them to feel agency over the design of spaces which will affect them. But I also want to talk more philosophically about how growing families approach a remodel and how the constantly shifting needs of a family with kids of any age is important to consider when you plan for your home. So, after last week's episode on designing with your kids, today let's cover design for kids and for families as a whole. You'll find show notes with relevant links and perhaps a sketch or two on my website, midmod-midwest.com slash 304. This episode is about planning for the long term rather than things we can do right now while sheltering in place. But even that, the idea of dreaming big dreams, ties right back into the three main activities I talked about at the start of this season. Here's a quick reminder. While we're all stuck at home, we have an opportunity to, one, tweak the house we already live in, rearrange spaces, look for underutilized rooms, and create areas or cozy little away nooks for individual family members, kids or adults, to get necessary alone time. If you need help with that, I've made a quick download to go along with this season that outlines the ingredients of a good nook and offers suggestions for four wonderful found spaces that you can create in your home right now. The second is that to the extent that it's soothing or helpful to you, you can take on some DIY or manual labor projects around your house to take your mind off the pandemic. You could finish up an outstanding project, make use of materials you already have in the house, or try my favorite room transformation technique, paint. It's nearly instant gratification, easy, and regardless of where you live, certainly if you're here in Wisconsin, you can place an order for curbside pickup at your local hardware store. Grab a couple of quarts of a bold color and fresh brushes and make a change in your home this weekend or this Thursday. Working from home means you can scoot time around and no one will ever know. But the third thing we can do right now while we all stay home is dream. We can use this time while we're stuck in our house to reflect on what we really need from our homes. How does your house work for you or doesn't? And plan the changes that you can make in the next year or the next five years or over the lifetime of your experience in the house. So I'm going to cover a few family remodeling related ideas today. The first will be what makes designing for a family different than designing for a single person or a couple. The second is how families planning a remodel need even more than everyone else, to plan for flexibility so their homes can accommodate a lifetime's worth of transitions. And the third will be to circle back to last week's topic and discuss ways that you can include your kids in the process of creating their own spaces. So, what makes designing for a family that has kids at home different from the design issues of a child-free family? In some ways, adding children to the household dynamic just means you have all the same design needs as those people without, but more so. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone can use a mudroom, or at the very least, some sort of a drop zone at the door where they enter the house from the car. You need an organized space where you can put away your shoes, coat, and bags, hang up the keys so they don't get lost. Everyone needs that. 
But if you have kids at home, this goes from a good idea to a necessary one. The more people in the house and the heightened sense of chaos you get with kids absolutely means you need to have routines in place and the cooperation of your house with those routines. Now, that isn't to say that having good routines in a house that helps you meet your own needs won't be beneficial to a single adult or a child-free couple, just that having kids makes it more so. And the same goes for a lot of spaces in the house. You just need to ask a lot more of your home when you're dividing your attention between the multiple important jobs of a work life, a personal life, and the intense task of parenting. Guiding a tiny human from helpless infant into responsible participating member of adult society is a big job, and it's never been clearer how much work that takes. Seriously, right now the coronavirus crisis has cut out all the outside help from parenting networks and made it absolutely plain what an enormous task parenting really is. We all salute you, parents. So you really need your houses to work better and smarter and harder for you to help your life run smoothly. Now, there are some legitimately different needs that families have, which adult households may not. One example of that difference to me is whether you really need a two-living-room house. I've never been a big believer in having two separate rooms in your home meant for sitting around, one of which is fancy formal and the other is family casual. I think it's a misuse of interior space. Without a minimal threshold of people in the house, it might be that the more formal of those two spaces almost never gets any use, holidays only. But even on a moment-by-moment basis, if you and your partner share a house and you like to spend your evenings together, when you're in one of those spaces, you're not using the other. So to me, what's the point? On the other hand, when you have a family with little kids or teens, it can be really helpful to have multiple rooms which can be occupied by groups of people. For more on this, pop back to my second episode of the season, number 302, which dug into our need for homes to have a place to gather together and many places to get away from each other. Having two types of family hangout spaces makes a lot more sense from this point of view. One might be on the main level and close to eating and cooking areas to allow for a casual mix of people during the evening time. Another might be more separate in the basement or off to one side of the house. That spot might be a place where someone goes to play a video game, watch sports, or do other loud things they don't want to inflict on the whole family. This is a good time for me to return to one of my main design philosophies, thinking specifically about the needs of you and your family. Don't just plan a dead addition because your neighbors did. Do absolutely absolutely consider it if it will improve the way you live in your home. What do you need your spaces to do for you? Ask how your family likes to spend your free time. Do you spend time together, or do you have a couple of people who need hours of alone time each weekend? Do you watch movies or prefer board games? These affect the kind of space you should design for yourself. And when you're planning for a family, you also need to think about how your familial needs may change. I like the NPR Politics podcast, and they start each episode with a listener-recorded soundbite. The person says who they are and where they are and why they like the show. Then the podcast presenter cuts in with the date and time they recorded the podcast, and it goes back to the listener one more time to say, things may have changed by the time you hear this. Now, I don't expect your family's needs to change as quickly as our national politics news, but from this year to next year, how you spend time with your kids may change. And from this year to five years from now, it will change. Try to make plans which reflect that transition. You can't see the future, but you can plan flexible spaces that have multiple functionalities. The number one principle that underlies good remodel planning for families is planning for change. A family that's structured around children is in a constant state of change, so what you want to do is create the ideal house that works for yourself right now, that will work for what you think will come next, and that can work for what you don't even know will be the phase after that. 
The secret is long-term thinking. Make as many decisions as possible from a place of growth, because you want your house to support your family for your whole lifetime. Now, in terms of long-term planning, you need to switch your brights on so you can see a little further down the road. It's unlikely that you have an evenly spaced kid every two years for a decade, meaning that there's always another tot to take over the space from his or her next oldest sibling. Your kids are going to age out of the style preferences, daily routines, and general developmental needs very consistently. So think about what kind of space they do need. If you have babies, plan for toddler play spaces too. If you've got toddlers, consider how their lives will shift when they're in daycare or school all day. That doesn't apply right now, of course. With young school kids, plan for how they'll study and retreat from the world as teens. Now, you don't have to fully design all these ideas out, but you want a little flexibility in your plan. A generous layout. Nothing too precision cut to fit the walls because the one constant of a child's life is change. And sometimes that change will happen with no time at all. Last week, we talked about how kids' needs in your home have changed during the school closure. Parents who had designed their homes around the routine of after-school homework, dinner, bath, and bedtime suddenly need enough different stations to keep the same child occupied for a school day's worth of time. Having a flexible setup allows you to shift with the shifting needs of your family or the odd international pandemic. The other thing that's different for a household with only a few adults versus one with a bunch of kids is the number of bedrooms and how those spaces will be used. Now, how does the number of bedrooms you have right now tally with the needs of your family? There isn't a right or wrong answer here, but I do advise you not to oversize your house. I've seen people dig themselves into a strange hole by planning a remodel with teens in the house or even right after their children have grown by choosing spaces large enough to accommodate a future hypothetical holiday visit by each of their adult children and their future hypothetical families. Having a minimal amount of guest space is great, but preserving places in your home for people to occupy only a few times a year just means more housekeeping for you. In this, we can learn from the existing cohort of mid-century ranches. These houses were built for larger families than we have today, and they sheltered and supported them while kids grew up, and then they were just right for contracted families, couples or single adults, aging in place right to the present day. These modest little houses have weathered the generational cycle very effectively, and we can look to them to see what additions and modifications were needed and which were not. Then we can take notes. So it's common to assume that a modern household with kids needs one bedroom per kid, plus one for the adults, and maybe a guest room. That's easy math, but it's not always the best way to go. I've recently come across two alternative approaches to bedroom per kid ratios. One of the rancher models I've seen in the world and admired most greatly is being documented on Instagram at a renovation story. You'll find the link in my podcast show notes. I am a huge fan of the Instagram account of Elizabeth Victoria, who documents her family's process of updating and slightly expanding a modest 1964 brick ranch to fit their needs over the last year and a half. They have three kids, so they reconfigured their home with a small addition to arrange three bedrooms in a row perpendicular to the main block of the house and sharing a bathroom, while taking the house's original two front bedrooms and combining them into a master suite with private bathing facilities for the parents. It looks like this is the perfect solution for their family, and I really admire their creativity in both rearranging and adding to the existing house to make it happen. Pop over to her Instagram account and check it out. 
But on the other hand, I just did a little design review for a family who's going the opposite direction with their kids' spaces. They have five kids ranging in age from small to high school, and they just bought a house with four bedrooms. Now, rather than add on again to make a room for each member of the family, they've rearranged existing spaces to add bathrooms, a master for the adults next to their room, and one for each of the two kid bedrooms accessed from inside each of those rooms. Add that up and you get just three bedrooms. So what are they doing with the fourth? It's going to be used as a teen auxiliary space, the shared area for daytime use that kids or guests can use to take the burden off the private spaces in the bunked bedrooms. So rather than designating that extra bedroom as a prize for one kid to get to themselves, it's an overflow space which can flexibly accommodate activities and different levels of privacy for the whole family. Now, if that strikes you as crazy, rethink the way you approach a child's bedroom. The contemporary idea of a child's bedroom is that it's a day and night multi-use space exclusively for the use of one child, and it's pretty much the only space in the house that that child might have full control over. Now, you might still have boots on the floor in the mudroom, remnants of snacks in the kitchen, and games left out in the living room, but the only space in a house that is for the child, where their stuff is allowed to be, is their room. Contrast that with the way you use your own bedroom. You likely don't spend a lot of daytime hours in that room. It's for sleeping. You use the rest of the house for the rest of your time. So consider that you might treat a child's bedroom the same way. Free up an extra bedroom for kid daytime space, possibly by having two kids bunk together. They get a separate day and night space, one for playing, thinking, and learning, and one for sleeping. This can promote good sleep hygiene and set them up for a well-balanced life. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic and recommend that solution to everyone, but I like to throw out unconventional uses of space so that you don't find yourself falling into a design rut simply because it's there. Even if you do have one room per child in your family, I still suggest that you seek out one or several other spaces in the house that can be sometimes or always designated as kid space. This might be a niche under the stairs, a basement den, or a corner of the formal living room. Let them share in the design of that area and then make them responsible for keeping it in order. This kind of engagement is a great way to help your kids feel ownership of creativity. They'll set up good habits for their lifetime of making a home their own. Now, I know it's fun to look at Pinterest and for you to choose the most beautiful curated kids style room and then lovingly craft them into being for your own kids. But really, once we get past the nursery stage, the child that lives in this bedroom needs some input too. Give your kid a little leeway. Speaking of which, let's step away from the philosophy of designing for kids and talk specifically about how to engage with your children while designing for them. I would say that some of the same principles apply to kid spaces that do to everything else. Look for places where you can plan for the long term, like simple furniture that will last through an age, a range of ages, but then go wilder and further into personal choices in details. That means paint, decorations, and fabric. I've talked about this before. Paint, fabric, and art are your best places to make a bold choice. That's true whether you're making choices for your living room or your front door, and it's true when you're talking about the design team of you and your child making choices for their space. Setting up the layout is a one-time choice. Cutting in a new window is something you only want to do once. Anything that would be permanently attached to the house should be carefully selected with the future in mind. Think tiles, fixtures, flooring. Other things like wall color, light fixtures, rugs, and some furniture are more easily transitioned and changed. So here's a for instance. If you're remodeling a bathroom that's going to be used primarily by your children, I wouldn't advise getting novelty-themed faucets shaped like a rubber ducky. Instead, choose something to your taste that will last through several upcoming design eras. 
but do absolutely get them a rubber ducky themed shower curtain and go right ahead and paint the walls rubber ducky yellow. I'd still advise white tile. That's always a right choice. This ties right back to my philosophy of sustainable remodeling. If you want more on that, I've got a blog post and actually a whole ebook you can grab at my website. I'll pop a link in the show notes. But in general, I believe that remodeling can be a much greener choice than building new, even if that new home were to feature all the best and latest in green building technology. There are also ways to make any remodel more or less earth-friendly. And while I know not every family is primarily interested in sustainable design, planning for the future means planning for your children's long-term health and happiness. Who doesn't want to invest in that? Anyway, one way to make your remodel more sustainable is to limit your boldest choices to the areas which are least wasteful to change later. That helps avoid some of the inevitable waste that comes from replacing an old thing with a new thing. So again, this applies to your kids' room and all decor elements. Painting really is one of the most fun things you can do with and for your kids in their space. Let them choose the colors, even if they make you wince, and get them to help you make the painting transition. Or you could help them do it themselves. A couple of caveats for that. Painting with modern latex is so forgiving. It's easy to accomplish and clean up afterwards, but it does help to go nuts with the drop cloths and the painter's tape. The younger your kids are helping you paint, the more you want to have a bunch of damp paper towels or washcloths handy to get an oops handled quickly. I also always advocate working with no VOC products. Older and cheaper paints are made with volatile organic compounds. VOCs. And that's organic, like containing compounds that can interact with the human body badly, not organic like vegetables. Basically, if you can smell your paint while you're painting, it's not doing you any good. And that off-gassing can be particularly bad for children's developments. So look for no VOC paint. With those two things out of the way, I encourage you to really engage with painting projects and your children. I grew up with a mom who loved to paint her walls. She helped us paint the household multiple times, and she helped us make bold choices for our own rooms. I remember my first personal room choice was a really intense pink for the walls. She must have hated it, but didn't say a thing. A few years later, when I was an angsty and designerly teen, I painted the walls paper white, framed a bunch of art prints in black frames, and did over all of the trim in shiny black. She didn't say a thing then either, even though it took three coats to bring the room back to neutral before we could sell the house. In my little sister's room, we also went with wild color. One of my favorite childhood memories was being left alone for a weekend under the supervision of a next-door neighbor with several cans of paint. I was probably 16 and my little sister around 10. We took her room from astronomy-themed navy and yellow to little girl lavender, painting the walls, the ceiling, and all her wooden furniture. She'd been a little afraid of her closet for a while, so we brainstormed it together and decided to make the whole thing go away. We pulled off the doors and stored them in the basement and reconfigured the closet as a canopy header for her bed. It was a thrilling design exercise, and she loved the transition and the fact that she and I had done it together. So, did my parents letting me have agency over my own room make me an architect? Or did I have so much fun doing it because architecture was always in my bones? Hard to say. I want to circle back one more time to tell you that the biggest takeaway of designing for your kids is to plan for change. And the second biggest takeaway is that to whatever extent you can, give your kids some agency over the process. With little kids, that might be choosing a color or a Disney-oriented theme for their room. With school-aged kids, you can engage them in design thinking. Remember, last week I went through age-appropriate design activities recommended by educators, and even a kindergartner can start playing around with the rudiments of a floor plan. Encourage spatial awareness in your children. 
If you've got teenagers, on the one hand, they've got a foot out the door, but on the other, they are ready to learn from you about placemaking and what it means to make their own future homes. Who knows? You could be raising a little architect. Oh, by the way, did you hear me on Larry Mueller's show last week? It was so much fun to be on Wisconsin Public Radio and to answer the call-in questions people had about their homes. You can listen to it through the link in my show notes, and if you feel inspired to ask me a question, please do. Drop me an email or a direct message with a question you'd like answered on the podcast, and I will address it in my next episode. You'll find those links in the show notes, midmod-midwest.com slash 304. If you just want some quick advice on making your house multitask by creating more small nooks to get away from it all, grab my free PDF download at midmod-midwest.com slash nooks. And don't forget, you can help new listeners find the show by adding a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk next week, Midmod Remodelers. 